2 Samuel chapter 21, if you'll turn with me there. We didn't quite get out of the 21st chapter. We kind of find ourselves wrapping up the end of the description of David's life as we come to the end of 2 Samuel here. Some actually believe that these last few chapters of 2 Samuel are actually an appendix uh, to the book, uh, different opinions in regards to that, but some of what's recorded here, some question the chronology of it, if it's sort of an appendix that fills back in some of the details that took place in an earlier time of David's uh, life or reign. Uh, we can't be certain 100%, but as we come to the end of chapter 15, or excuse me, end of chapter 21, as we pick up in verse 15, we get record here of some of the different battles uh, that David experienced uh, some of the wars uh, that he engaged in, and we know that took place pretty much throughout the time of from when David was uh, first serving together with Saul, even while Saul was still king, and then all the way through the time, really, of David's reign as well. So look at me in verse 15 of chapter 21. It says, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, and remember the Philistines were these perennial enemies of Israel. They just continued to be a people who instigated conflict with the Jewish people. So we read of this time when again they were at war with Israel. David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines and David grew faint. So uh, again, could this be a reference to a time in David's life when maybe he is beginning to age uh, and together with aging, he's just sort of slowing down uh, his stamina, his endurance, his ability to be able to engage in combat. Remember, was a very physical experience in that day. They weren't sort of launching missiles from a distance and just pushing butts. I mean, this was hand-to-hand -hand combat. It took a lot of stamina and endurance to engage in physical close combat like this. Nonetheless, what the Bible does tell us here is whether David was a young man uh, and just grew faint, and that's possible. He just found himself exhausted and was wearied in the midst of the conflict, or whether David is aging at this point, and as a result of that kind of finds himself in a weak state. That weakness made him vulnerable. Whenever we grow faint, we do become vulnerable, and we all have the capacity to certainly find ourselves at times growing faint, even in fighting the Lord's battles and doing what's good. So verse 16 tells us in the midst of this, when David grew faint, that Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant. Now, this is going to be a reference to Goliath here. We'll see this referred to a few times as we finish out this chapter. Ishbi Benob, one of, it seems, uh, Goliath's sons, uh, uh, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was also bearing a sword, thought that he could kill David. So he senses there's a vulnerability. He realizes that David has grown faint, and he at this point is wanting to capitalize on this vulnerable condition that David is in. And of course, this is exactly how not only this enemy of David works, but that's exactly how the enemy of our soul works, that he tends to exploit the times in our lives, it seems, maybe when we're weary, when we've grown faint, maybe we're just under a lot, whether we're physically worn out or sometimes maybe we find ourselves just emotionally drained or mentally exhausted or even just spiritually, we can just kind of grow faint. Again, remember Paul said, writing to the Galatians, he said, let us not grow weary 
in well-doing. And so, again, Paul includes himself in that, let us not grow weary. So we all have the capacity to grow weary at times. And these are the times where the enemy of our soul, like Ishbi Benob here with David, realizes this is an occasion to exploit and, and realizes, hey, I can take him out or I can take her out because of the faintness and the weakness of the weary condition that they're in. So he's thinking he's going to capitalize on this. But thank goodness for good friends and good comrades and brothers. Verse 17, it says, But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to David's aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out any more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And again, that would seem to indicate to me them telling David at this point, Listen, uh, you going out and engaging in combat with us as our king is not wise, lest you quench the lamp, the, the, the light, that which represents Israel. This to me would seem to indicate, it's very likely at this time, David maybe is in the latter years reigning as a king maybe he's middle-aged or beginning to get a little bit older and because of that they realize uh, the the potential of him being wounded or put to death more easily in battle and they say look David you're the king uh, and anybody who's fought in combat knows that if you want to really cause a, a powerful blow to your enemy then you try and take out the leader and so they say David listen it's not good for you to come out anymore you're going to have to allow us to engage in combat more and you give direction and kind of maybe a change in the, the season of David's life here, having to maybe kind of adjust that he's not this young buck that he once was who could go out there and do everything that he once did. And sometimes that's a just kind of an experience that we have to embrace in our lives, that you know who we once were, we may continue to think we're 18 years old in our mind or 20 years old in our mind, but, but these bodies after time, they change and seasons change. And sometimes we need to be willing and just in maturity and wisdom to adjust and to recognize, hey, this is what season I'm in and, and maybe this is a transition season and, and maybe I need to let others do some things that I used to do. And this beautiful way here, Abishai nonetheless comes to David's aid when he's vulnerable and it seems about to be uh, slown by uh, this man, Ishbi Benob. It says Abishai comes in and comes to David's aid, strikes the Philistine and, and really spares David. And, and again, this beautiful picture, this man, Abishai, certainly uh, was just someone, we find him a few times referenced in these last chapters, who just was an incredible support to David. Remember, Abishai, this guy was the one who, when David was going out of the city, when Absalom caused the rebellion that happened, and remember when David was leaving the city, uh, there was that man, remember, who was taking rocks and it was throwing them at David and cursing David. And it was this man, Abishai, that said to David, David, he shouldn't be doing that to you. Let me go over there and take his head off and put him to death. And then later on, again, this same man, Abishai, comes to David's aid a second time, we find, uh, on another occasion. And now here, a third occasion, we find much the same thing. This man, I mean, almost like a, a, a close comrade, a bodyguard, whenever anyone sought to harm or do anything against David, this guy was not going to permit it. He was just loyal to David faithful he stood by him and i'll tell you the, the you want a few of these friends you want these kind of people who are going to be at your side uh, especially in the moments when you're the most vulnerable who are going to step in and are going to provide assistance and support to you and that's what this man abishai 
certainly became to David. So he protects David here. Uh, Verse 18 says, Now it happened afterward that there was again, notice, a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And then Sibachai, the Hushite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Another son, take notice. Verse 19, Again there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Alhanan, the son of that guy, we won't pronounce, The Bethlehemite killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So they had massive weapons, these guys did, because of the size of their bodies they could handle these heavy, large weapons. Yet again, verse 20, notice the language repetition. Yet again, there was war at Gath, one of those chief cities of the Philistine peoples, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Apparently, the Holy Spirit thought we needed to know that. Uh, that's what this guy looked like. Uh, must have been unique. And he was 20, had 24 in number, and he was born also to the giant. So another descendant uh, of Goliath. So when he defied Israel, notice Jonathan the son of Shemiah, David's brother. So not only David's friends, but this apparently is a a close comrade, maybe a physical brother of David, comes to the aid this time, intervenes and puts to death this particular enemy. Verse 22 concludes saying, and these four were born to the giant in Gath and he fell, or they fell, excuse me, by the hand of, and by the hand of David, and by the hand of his servants. So, uh, notice here, there's this just really record, it's just a historical narrative of a few of the different conflicts that happened during ongoing war with the Philistine people, different individuals that would rise up, descendants of Goliath. Verse 22 seems to indicate to us that Goliath, the giant, had four sons, because it says these four were born to the giant. So were of that same descendancy, had a similar genetic stature, very large individuals. And the Bible records here how these giants beyond Goliath were defeated, some of them by David's men, by his brother. Uh, And as we look at this, I think a few things we can draw out of what's here, I think which is a good reminder to us. The first thing I would draw to your attention as we look at this is that sometimes we need the assistance of other people in our battles. We can't always win every battle in our own strength alone. Sometimes we honestly need other people to come to our aid, to assist us, to be a support maybe in our time of weakness, maybe to be someone who can stand strong when we're at our weakest point, or someone who can intervene in some way and maybe we just can't handle a particular battle or conflict, and maybe that's a battle someone else needs to engage in. Someone else needs to step into and and perhaps take the lead role in that. But nonetheless, whether it's Abishai helping David or some of these different men recorded here, or again, the reference to Shimei, David's brother, killing another one of the giants there in verse 21, sometimes we see here that David needed the assistance of other people in his battles. Yes, these were David's battles, but he didn't fight every battle alone, and nor should we ever do that. We should recognize the value of other people. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one, for they have a good return for their work. 
And there is something very valuable, again, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our brother in the Lord, a sister in Christ, just utilizing the benefit of the body of Christ. Sometimes we need people to stand and support. And I'll tell you, it is the wise man and the wise woman who builds accountability and people into their lives that are comrades and support people into their lives. Woe to the individual who isolates themselves because the battles do come. And the war will rage. And you know, uh, when, when you find yourself isolated and then the enemy begins to bring his attack and his resistance, you're going to find yourself in a much more vulnerable place if you don't have people to help you in the times of those spiritual conflicts and battles that you experience in your life. And one of the things I think we see as well, a secondary thing in these verses, is that part of just life generally just life generally, as well as serving the Lord, involves facing periodic battles. Do you notice the language as we were reading through this? Notice again, if I can draw your attention, verse 18, it says it happened afterward, that after the battle that was just referenced, afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines. Verse 19, again there was war at Gob with the Philistines. Verse 20, yet again there was war at Gath. Wouldn't you love if it just read one battle and that was it? <laughs> but you notice the, the Holy Spirit almost purposely gives us this repetition, even in the language, the way it's recorded for us, yet again and again and again. And the reality is, listen, whether, as I said, it's just life in general, part of life in general is, is not easy street. We live in a fallen world that's cursed by sin and plagued with its problems and difficulties and whether it's health issues or financial challenges or just circumstances that go awry or family problems or, or just struggles in life generally, part of life is honestly just facing different battles. And life involves its different battles and part of serving the Lord Add into that, you know, I mean, we, we think life has its battles to, to start out with. And I hate to tell you, when you came to Jesus Christ, you got drafted into a whole other war. So you just took on a few more battles. You know, the Bible tells us that, that we should be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we chose to serve the Lord, then, then there are the Lord's battles on top of that. And there's spiritual warfare. The Bible describes Ephesians 6 and all throughout that there is this spiritual aspect of battles and conflict that goes on as well. And, and this is just a part of living life and it's a part of the Christian walk that there are going to be battles. So don't think every time, oh, another battle, another battle. That, that's just par for the course. And it's just healthy sometimes that we almost recognize that life is not just, look, you know when the battles stop? It's called heaven. <laughs> so the battles will stop when you die. I mean, that's just, that's just, I know that's probably the most encouraging thing you ever heard on a Wednesday night Bible study, but the battles stop when you die or when we're raptured. I'll, I'll take the latter would sound better to me just to blast off and be set free. The one other thing I draw your attention before we begin chapter 22 is this, is notice that I think this is beautiful. David, one of his greatest triumphs is that David was known for what? He slayed Goliath. This young boy, the giant killer with great faith in God, believing in what God could do. God miraculously worked through David's life and David had the courage and the love for God that he actually slew a giant. 
And notice now what we see happening later on, we find that the men who were around David became just like David because David's men, this records for us here, they now become giant killers. Just like David slew a giant, the men that spent time with David lived with David, walked with David, fellowshiped with David. As a result of being with him, they became like him. Because now this records that they themselves were slaying giants just like David did. And you know, Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And these men became like David. They took on David's traits and characteristics. They did exploits like David because they spent time together with David. And you know what? The same is true. Who we follow is usually who we become like. So for starters, that means we should definitely be following Jesus. Because just like they became more like David by spending time with him, the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we walk with Jesus and live together with Jesus, we will become more Christ-like. It's a process. But we will become more like Jesus if we spend time with him and walk with him. And I think as well, just in regards to human relationships, my encouragement to you is like these men, follow the right men. Follow the right women. If you're going to follow people on a human level, leaders or examples or mentors, you know what? Follow the right people because Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher, but when someone is trained, they can become just like their teacher. And then there's this beautiful replication that begins to happen even among the people of God as we be wise in regards to who we choose to follow as far as those examples or leaders in our lives. Well, chapter 22 now tells us that David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, if you read ahead here, what we get record of in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is very, very similar to what we have later on in Psalm 18. And what's being described here, it tells us in verse 1, is that David wrote out, it says, spoke to the Lord the words of the song. So David wrote out these expressions of worship, and that's what this is. It's basically an expression of worship and poetic language. David was a spirit-inspired poet. Uh, he used his anointing from the Lord in creative ways. Uh, in, in musical ways to put you know, poems to music. And, and David was a spirit-anointed songwriter and a spirit-anointed musician. Uh, and it's interesting that even as David closes out, we'll see in chapter 23, the thing that he takes claim to for his life, more than anything else, he calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. He could have said, David the giant slayer. David could have signed off David, the greatest king of Israel. David, a man known to be after God's own heart. But what David found the most, uh, perhaps in some ways, important to his life experience is he refers to himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel, which is a direct connection to one thing, his worship life. That he was just a worshiper. And he saw himself as a worshiper more than anything else. And really, David, I believe, was more effective, obviously, in his psalms and his expressions of worship than he was in anything else he did. Because slaying a giant and leading the nation as a great king and the military exploits, look, all those things were great, but they impacted one brief generation. 
His psalms are benefiting people for centuries and centuries and centuries as it's spirit-inspired speech that God gave to him that impacts so many of us. And here we have one of really what becomes David's psalms. It's very likely what this is, is David recorded this at a time earlier on, it uh, says during a time when he had been delivered from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So again, could this have been David's earlier reign? Maybe in his latter years, there's dispute. I don't think it's really that critical either way. And then later, David probably took this and edited it somewhat and then made it into Psalm 18 because you find Psalm 18 is very similar. It just has a few added phrases. Even the very beginning of Psalm 18 starts out, I will love you, O Lord. And then it begins with some of the statements that we find here. So Psalm 18 was sort of edited and added to later on. But very, very similar language to Psalm 18. Let's look what it says here. It says that David said, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. So uh, David here begins to just give expression to the Lord directly and, and to just express to him his gratitude, notice, for everything the Lord had become to him personally. And I emphasize there, notice, these were the things that, that the Lord had become to David in a personal way. I mean, we could just meditate on each one of these words here for our own lives and what they mean to us and certainly what they meant to David. Time doesn't allow us to do that. Many references, he calls the Lord my rock, the stability in his life, my fortress, my deliverer, the one who you know, sets me free from dangerous and harmful things, the God of my strength, my shield, the one who would protect him the horn of my salvation. God is a stronghold and a refuge and then of course is a savior, a deliverer from that which would destroy his life. But again, notice this is what the Lord had become to David in a personal way, in an experiential way. Do you notice that David does not say the Lord is a rock and he's the stronghold and he's the deliverer and he's the savior and he's the shield. Now that's true. The Lord is the Savior, and he is the rock. That is, but David said he's my rock. He's become my rock. He's become my fortress. He's become my Savior. And see, when the Lord becomes those things to you in a personal way, that then brings an expression of worship from your life. And that's ultimately what the Lord wants. Not that we would just know him intellectually and what's true of him by fact, but that we would experientially know these things for ourselves, that we would experience him in our lives in these personal ways by firsthand experiences. Because notice when that's true, that then causes, that facilitates worship. Notice David goes on, verse four, he says, in light of those things, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And so shall I be saved from my enemies. Now, let me just say, as a side note there, verse 4 
is a beautiful worship song that's been sung many years ago. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, that was a song that we sang as an echo song. You know, I will call, I will call. Remember that? Upon the Lord, upon the Lord, who is worthy, who is worthy. Just a, again, taking the word of God, what it says, it's truth, and translating it into a form of expression of worship to the Lord. And David, because he knew God as his rock and his fortress and his deliverer and his stronghold and his savior, he had learned about God that God's very reliable. That's what he's saying in verse four. Because these things are true and I've known it in my own experience firsthand, he says, therefore, as the result, I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and so shall I be saved from my enemies. What David is declaring there is he had learned that the Lord was dependable. He said, I will call upon the Lord because I know who he is and I know what he's done and I know what he's become to me in so many personal ways in my life. So I will call upon him and I will be saved. I shall be delivered. The Lord will come through. And I'll tell you, it's a wonderful thing when you get to know the Lord through personal experience with some of these terms in such a way where then you begin to realize that truly the Lord is utterly dependable, totally reliable. How we wish that could be true of other people in our lives. But listen, we are all frail we are all weak we are all to some degree unreliable inconsistent as human beings and that is the one thing i find in my life that is beautiful that separates who i am and who other people are from the lord is he's the rock of ages he's the immutable god he is the faithful one who never changes who cannot lie and you can always call upon the lord and always know that he's going to come through that he's reliable and dependable. And this is what David is saying, and that's why he's worthy to be praised. David now uses poetic language. We'll read some of this a little more quickly because much of it is, notice, poetic speech to dramatize his own personal experiences. But just look at the language. Again, just an incredibly creative man as he wrote out his expressions. He says, when the waves of death surrounded me, that doesn't sound good, death and waves coming at you, surrounding you the floods of godliness made me or excuse me ungodliness made me afraid so notice the honesty of david again he didn't just say there's ungodliness around me but he said it was like a flood like a tarn sometimes we feel like that when we live out in the world we literally feel like that that like a you know a, a massive flood like a tsunami of ungodliness is just coming against our life maybe in our in our job or, or in the world in general, it just feels like a, just this massive wave of ungodliness is just coming against us so strong. He says, verse 6, the sorrows of Sheol, the place of the dead, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. He felt like his life was in jeopardy. And notice verse 7, how he handled this. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. You know what? That that just goes to show that there are going to be times, even if you're serving the Lord, doing what's right, you're somebody who loves God, you're trying to walk righteously, that there are going to be times when you're going to face circumstances and challenges and situations where you find yourself distressed, stressed out overwhelmed, 
despairing. You're going to go through ranges of emotions where you know you may actually feel depressed and discouraged and despairing. And you just you you know I love one of the Psalms refers to when we were at our wits' end. That's actually in the Bible. At our wits' end. And this is what David's saying. The floods of ungodliness, the sorrows of Sheol, the waves of death. And David says, I was totally in distress, SOS. But he says, in my distress, what did he do? Notice, he didn't go to some dumb coping mechanism. Oh, I can't handle it. Where's the beer? Where's the drugs? What other coping mechanism can I use to just... Take away the stress temporarily or make myself feel better. And, and listen, we can we come up with all kinds of negative coping mechanisms. Life's hard. It's challenging. I understand that. But what we need to be wise about is that we don't use unhealthy coping mechanisms even when we are utterly distressed and at our wits end. Our coping mechanism is to cry out to the Lord, is to turn to the Lord, to rely upon Him. And so David says, in my distress... I called upon the Lord. I worshiped. I prayed. He says, I cried out to my God. And he heard my voice from his temple. He gave God a chance to come through for him. Sometimes it's so sad. We, we don't even give God a chance to come through because maybe we turn to something else in our distress. And that never works anyway. And ultimately we find ourselves doing what David did, which is the right thing. Cry out to God. And notice, verse 8, more poetic language. This is God's awesome response to when David cried out. Look, look how God handled this. David cried out. He says, my cry came to his ears, and then the earth shook. Now, you know God loves you when he shakes the whole earth for you. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Now, I get the impression there that that's kind of just a loving father who's looking down at one of his children who's in distress and crying out to him, Dad, help, because this is going on, or I'm being mistreated or abused. And, and, and like any father, no father takes lightly when their child is being in any way harmed or threatened, and God's a loving father. So God was angry because someone was messing with his child. And you know what? Sometimes, you know, I've said this before, maybe a situation happens and I've had people, even Christians sometimes, almost kind of encourage me. I remember a few occasions when we were pastoring back in York and, you know, a situation or two arose and, and somebody would almost like kind of encourage me to kind of like, man, you just, you can't. And I would say, look, here's all I know. I, I would hate to be them when, when my father addresses them. And I just, sometimes you can almost retreat into the, if you have the faith and, and the willingness to just kind of let it go and let God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and to just say, boy, when my father in heaven, because I know how my human father would respond. And I know how I would respond as a father. And to say, boy, I really, when my father addresses that, here it says that, that God was angry. Smoke, it says, verse 9. Imagine that picture of, of God there. Dave, again, very poetic. Smoke went out from his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. Again, the God of creation controlling everything with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub. Again, remember, that was one of the angelic beings that the Bible describes and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him. 
dark waters and thick clouds of the skies from the brightness before him coals of fire were kindled so he just pictures God in blazing fire and power coming in response to his cry reaching his ears he says verse 14 the Lord thundered from heaven the most high uttered his voice pictures the power of God's voice like the most loud thunder that you could experience he sent out arrows and scattered them lightning bolts and he vanquished them then the channels of the sea were seen the foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils so david just again very poetically here in his language pictures notice the constant references to the voice of the lord and, and also this reference here to the breath of the Lord. It says, at the rebuke of the Lord, the blast of the breath of his nostrils. So he pictures just what comes, comes forth from the mouth of the Lord, his voice and the breath of the Lord being blown forth, having these very powerful effects. Now, as I look at this, it, it reminds me of even some New Testament things that we have told to us. Second Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, describe... Our Lord Jesus, it says literally with the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming, he instantly destroys the Antichrist, that he eliminates all of his enemies. Again, all he needs to do is speak the word. All he needs to just just one breath of his mouth and instantaneously the power of God to just overcome Jesus to just overthrow the Antichrist and all of his enemies. It speaks of the same as we get to the New Testament. David goes on, verse 17, saying, He sent from above and took me and drew me out of many waters. So here, speaking of the Lord's power to rescue, and again, just picturesque language. He sent from above. He took me, that is, he snatched me out drew me out of many waters, the Lord's power to rescue us. And again, I look at verse 17 there. I can't help but to think what a beautiful picture we find there of certainly, first of all, salvation. Does that not describe the salvation experience tonight for those of us who've been saved by Jesus? He sent from above and he took you. He took you to be his own and drew you out of the many waters that you found yourself probably drowning in of your own sin and failures and mistakes and you were on your way down and, and he sent from above and he drew you out and he took you to himself and rescued your life. And I think as well, verse 17 is a picture also to me of, of the rapture, the catching away of the saints, what Jesus is about to do at some imminent moment. What a beautiful picture. Jesus is going to send from above and he's going to take you and I out of this world. He's going to snatch us out of this world and just draw us out of the waters of sin and defilement and just going to snatch us away at some point when that trumpet blows and the Lord calls us up to meet him in the air. Verse 18, David says, He delivered me, notice, from my strong enemy, not just an enemy. Have you ever had an enemy? He said, man, that's just not an enemy. That is a stronghold in my life. This thing is a strong enemy. It's not just an enemy. I mean, this just this is this is like a strong enemy, a stronghold. It just controls my life, and I can't uproot it, and I can't overcome it. Notice, David says he delivered me from my strong enemy. You know, I was just talking to a 
younger Christian man recently and in regards to something similar like that. And I said, see, the difference is a lot of times we're trying to set ourselves free. And I understand the practicality of repentance and making right choices and walking in the spirit. But Jesus said, if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And when Jesus sets you free, and Jesus is the one that brings the deliverance, and you say, Lord, I can't save myself from this, or this, Lord, if you will deliver me from this, take away the desire for this sin, or, or set me free from this craving or this struggle, Lord, set me free. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. And David here beautifully says, the Lord delivered me from my strong enemy. Those who hated me, for they were too strong for me, he says. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Isn't that a beautiful statement there? The Lord was my support. And when nobody else stands by you, when nobody else provides any support in your life, how wonderful that, what a statement there. That David had come to learn, the Lord was my support. The Lord supported me. When I couldn't support myself and nobody else gave me support, the Lord supported me. I love the statement in the Psalms where it says, though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. And what a wonderful thing to realize that there is someone in your life who will always support you, who will never leave you or forsake you. You can discover how the Lord will be your support in situations when no one else will be or can be maybe. Verse 20, he says, he also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me, David says, because he delighted in me. Now that's interesting. David would say, again, talking of the Lord's deliverance, he says, he delivered me because he delighted in me. The idea there to, to find delight, the implication is like, again, maybe if, if you're a, a, probably a, you know, a grandparent can maybe relate to some more where you just delight in your grandchildren, right? Because you can just delight in them, enjoy them and feed them up with sugar and just send them home for all the challenging stuff, right? You can just delight in them. You just, oh, this is like you enjoy him, for, but just, hey, all the hard stuff, send them home to the parents for that reality stuff of raising kids. And this is the idea here. When it says, David says, the Lord delivered me because he delights in me. David had come to realize that God actually didn't just love him. He liked him. That the Lord delighted in him. And what an amazing thing to think about. It's hard for us to think of that rationally. How awesome to, to recognize and I believe it does take some measure of faith, that the Lord honestly doesn't just love you, he delights in you. You actually provide enjoyment to him. He enjoys your life. He finds pleasure in your life. He doesn't look at you as something to be tolerated. He actually delights in you. You give him delight. You give him pleasure and satisfaction. You, that is, you're special to him. You give delight. And David says, he delighted in me. The Lord, verse 21, he says, rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, that is abstaining from things that David knew was wrong. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. As for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him and I kept myself from iniquity. Now, when you read those statements, there needs to be certainly, in just a reality check, a part of us that kind of goes, what, David? I mean, how can you say that? I mean, when you read what David's saying there, I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not wickedly departed from my God. Well, hold on. David, how about the whole Bathsheba thing? 
How about the murdering of Uriah the Hittite? How about some of the... I mean, David certainly had a few heavies, you could say, on his record. Some major moral failures and mistakes that he had made at different stages. Again, listen, overall, was David a lover of the Lord, a worshiper of God? Yes, absolutely. And when you look at the big overall picture of David's life, these statements are true. David loved the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He kept the ways of the Lord. God's the one that said that he's a man after my own heart. But yet, at the same time, some of what David says, there's a contradiction because at times, David did depart from the ways of the Lord. He did make some pretty grievous sins and mistakes. So again, was he writing this before he had done those things? Or was he writing them even afterwards because in faith he understood the bigger picture of God's love and the way that God relates to him, giving him a position of righteousness, not him earning a position of righteousness. Because look what he says, verse 25, Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness, notice, in his eyes. It's possible that David is writing this. Again, how do you reconcile with what David did and what he's saying? It's possible David understood that yes, he had some pretty major mistakes in his life. That a few occasions he had really bottomed out like we all do on occasion. That though he overall walked with the Lord and loved the Lord and served the Lord and was a man of God, that there were times when David just had chinks in his armor and failed and, and made mistakes, but yet perhaps David knew those things did not remove the righteousness that God had put upon his life because David perhaps understood in the spirit as with Abraham and with others even prior to the time of Christ that righteousness is something is received. Righteousness is something provided by God by our faith toward him. Righteousness is not something earned or even maintained by our perfect performance. That's why David says there, he says, the Lord's recompense me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Perhaps David understood in everybody else's eyes, yes, I have messed up. And there are some major stains on my practice of what it means to live out my life. But in his eyes, I'm seen as righteous because of my faith towards him. See, this is what the Bible teaches, particularly in the New Testament, regarding what Christ has done for us. That the righteousness of God is received by us through faith. That it's a righteousness provided by God, not earned by our perfect performance. And we need to learn that. That through our faith in Christ, we have a righteous position and our righteousness is not based upon our performance, it's based upon what has been provided for us through Jesus by our faith in him and therefore in his eyes, though we are at times unrighteous in our behavior, we are seen clean and righteous because of what Jesus has done. Verse 26, he says, with a merciful, you show yourself merciful. And with a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With a pure, you show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. So in these statements, notice David is just referring to how God at times will relate to us in response to our condition. That when we're merciful, God renders mercy to us. That when we have a pure heart, God will reveal to us things. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, they shall see God. And when we're devious and shrewd, that God at times will deal back to us 
the way that we're behaving in our condition. He speaks of how God will save the humble, but he'll bring down or humble the haughty in their heart condition. Verse 29, David declares, For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. So he spoke of how his enlightenment came directly from the Lord. He said, Lord, you are my lamp in this very dark world. I can't create light for myself. I'm not finding light and direction for guidance anywhere else. But Lord, you're my light. You're like the lamp in my life. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And again, beautiful that the Lord provides enlightenment. He says, the Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Boy, there have been some times when I have found myself, whether in the pit of discouragement or despair or just, you know, spiritual warfare that's going on, and you just feel like you are in the darkest cloud. And how wonderful that the Lord, by just experience with the Lord and spending time with how the Lord can begin to enlighten your darkness and he can begin to drive away the depression and push back the discouragement to begin to bring light again and enlighten you with his love and his presence in a beautiful way. Again, these personal experiences we can have with God, even as David did. He says, verse 30, for by you I can run against a troop. That is a, a troop of soldiers. By my God, I can leap over a wall. So here David speaks of how the Lord not only gives enlightenment, but the Lord also gives enablement to do things, to run against a whole troop. To jump over a wall again and again the most practical of things the Lord by the Lord's strength he says he enables me to be able to challenge my my enemies and, and to be able to leap over a wall and again just God enabling us to do the things that we must do even as David had to do in forms of battle as a soldier whatever you face God will help you with verse 31 as for God his way is perfect well you can meditate on that for a while that no matter what unfolds and think of David's life I mean David's experiences left a lot of questions the stuff he went through with Saul 15 years of difficulty thinking Lord I mean this is what it means to be in the center of your will caves and hardships and strugglings and problems and people are trying to kill me and I'm, I'm living a Robin Hood existence day to day, hand to mouth. Lord, this is what it, you've called me and this is what it means? Again, uh, but David at this stage of his life, he's able to look back through all these things and say his way's perfect. It, it just every, even the things I didn't get or the pieces I couldn't put together, David came to a place where he just realized the Lord's way is perfect. He never makes errors in how he does things. That his way is perfect, David says. And the word of the Lord is proven. Again, the reliability, tested and tried, the word of God, always dependable, fully trustworthy. And as a result of that, he says he is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and my power and he makes my way perfect. So not only is he perfect, but David says, he makes my way perfect. I love what he says in verse 33 there, God is my strength and my power. Notice he doesn't say God gives me strength and God gives me power. Now, now that's true. But David says more than that because God was so intertwined and as a part of his life, he, he said, no, God is my strength. God becomes my power. I have no power on my own. He doesn't just give me a little bit of strength to power. He is my strength. I have no strength in my life other than 
God himself. With God, Jesus said, nothing will be impossible. So he says, when God is my strength and my power, then he makes my crooked way perfect. God has this way when we depend upon him in our lives to uh, you know, sort of fill in all the gaps and the weaknesses and the errors, and he aligns our life to make our life come to a perfect, complete path to to be in step with his perfect plan for me he makes our way become perfect he makes my feet like the feet of the deer sets me on the high places that pictures the ibexes and the gazelles if you ever go to in or look at pictures of israel there how these you know deer like animals they walk on these steep cliffs and and how god has created them to have this incredible balance not fall off of these cliffs and keeping Again, preserving one from falling. He teaches my hands to make war. Imagine that. Apparently, sometimes that is divine, that God orchestrates that war is a proper thing. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze, David said. You've also given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness has made me great. Again, that I've underlined in my Bible, that statement always has just spoken to me again think of all of again david's talked about god's power how awesome he is how strong and his incredible you know just you know force that he has and yet david says what made him great was god's gentleness in his life lord it's your gentleness knowing how strong and awesome god is and he says lord that fact that you're gentle with me The times you've been gentle with me, though you have such great power, he says, that's what made me a great man. That intimacy, that gentle experience that God had with David. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Again, David becomes poetic again. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I destroyed them and wounded them so they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. Again, God giving him the victory and he recognized where it came from even in the midst of literal conflict and battle. You've subdued under me those who rose against me. You've given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth and trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. You've also delivered me from the strivings of my people. And sometimes that's worse than any enemy, the strivings of other people. You've kept me as the head of the nations. A people I've not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. And that was true. Remember, not just the Jews themselves, but other nations came and submitted themselves to David. We've seen that in his life. As soon as they hear, they obey me. And the foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. David concludes again, notice, with just an expression of spontaneous praise. Verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. He goes back to that again. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up of those who rise against me. You've delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, notice his response, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows his mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants 
forevermore. Again, notice verse 50 as David ponders all these wonderful attributes of God and the experiences that he had with God in his life in so many different ways described here poetically and specifically the terms that he gives to God, the ways God had worked in his life. David says, in light of this, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, and sing praises to your name. You see, David understood that worshiping God, giving thanks, singing praises to God, it's not just something that we do as a Christian routine. It's not just something we do as a a spiritual activity. It, it, It is something that is intended to be a part of the experience that we're to have with God. We need to give thanks to God. We're supposed to sing to the Lord. There's something about that of value to our relationship with God and David certainly understood that. Let's stand together, we'll pray and let's enter back into a time of worship as we just express our praise and thanksgiving and song to the Lord. Father, thank you for the word of God.